Here, during the worst of the storm, Paul is promised special deliverance, not only for himself, but also for all those who travel with him. Interestingly, as a bit of a sidebar, notice how easily divine sovereignty and human responsibility sit side by side in the mind of the Apostle Paul. He says that he has faith that God will do exactly as he has promised. He will deliver Paul and all his companions. And yet, he says, we must run aground on some island. The promise of divine action does not equate, in Paul's mind, with human inaction. He doesn't say, God's going to rescue us, so let's have a nap. He says, God is going to rescue us, so let's pull hard for that island. I think that's helpful to see. Faith in God should never result in human passivity or inaction. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Faith in God should never result in human passivity or inaction. Trusting in God does not mean that we don't need to do things that are wise, necessary, and good. Somehow these things go together. Somehow the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of human beings runs parallel as we see them doing here in this story. That's complicated, but we do see that again and again and again in the pages of the Bible. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 27. Without a question, this is the strangest chapter in the book of Acts. It's a chapter-long description of Paul's sea journey from Caesarea to Rome. I. Howard Marshall says here, The length of the narrative in proportion to that of the book as a whole is remarkable, especially since at first sight the narrative appears to contribute little to the theological aim of Acts, closed quote. So the first question we have to ask and answer is why is this story even here? As Marshall says, it doesn't contribute a great deal to the theological aim of Acts. So what is it contributing? In general, scholars have tended to point out two things. First of all, it further positions Paul as a sort of New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament prophets. We've already talked now on several occasions about how the New Testament apostles are really the successors of the Old Testament prophets. That's important for us to see just in terms of how our Bibles fit together. Jesus is the center and the focus of Holy Scripture. He is the Word made flesh. If you're reading the Bible and getting excited about something other than Jesus, you're reading it wrong. He is the focus. He is the climax. He is the point. The Old Testament prophets look forward to Jesus. They explain the need for Jesus. They express the longing for Jesus. And the New Testament apostles look back on Jesus. They explain the significance of Jesus. They explicate the teaching and work of Jesus. So it is that the church is being built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ as cornerstone. Therefore, just as God demonstrated the special authority of prophets in the Old Testament through signs, wonders, miracles, and special deliverances, so too he demonstrates the authority of the New Testament apostles. This is a story of special deliverance. Like Jonah and the whale, or Daniel in the lion's den, this is Paul saved from the sea. David Peterson makes that point in his commentary saying, Paul is once more presented as a prophetic figure whose 
words and deeds testify to the power and grace of God, even in strange and difficult circumstances. In all likelihood, that is the primary reason why this story is in your Bible. In addition, however, it also prepares us for the climax of chapter 28. We'll get there in due course, but at the end of chapter 28, there is a turn toward the Gentiles. There is some sort of climactic rejection by the Jews and an expression of confidence that the gospel will receive a warm embrace within the Gentile world. We see that foreshadowed here as Paul begins to emerge as a very respected figure in a variety of Gentile contexts. The soldiers appear in awe of him, the villagers revere him, and all seem open to the gospel. God is guiding his prophet through many dangers, toils, and snares, and directing him toward fertile soil and a remarkable harvest. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Just notice here the shift from third-person plural narrative to second-person plural. In other words, note the return of the we. Scholars generally understand that as an indication that Luke has rejoined the party. I read to you, a couple of episodes ago from John Pollock's marvelous biography of the Apostle Paul, where he referred to Luke's traveling around, visiting senior saints, and thoroughly investigating the activities and teachings of Jesus while Paul was in prison in Caesarea. Pollock imagines that Luke would have checked in with Paul on a regular basis and brought gifts and food and other encouragements to him before heading back out to further his work on the road. Here now, however, the shift to we again indicates that Luke is once more a permanent member of the traveling party. He has taken ship with the Apostle Paul. They're all traveling under the supervision of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, we don't know anything about Julius, but we know that the Augustan cohort was stationed in Syria around this time. Verse 2 says, And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. If you have a map in front of you as you read this chapter, it will be obvious to you that this journey was a bit of a milk run. In general, Romans were not fantastic sailors, and they typically kept very close to the coastline as they made their way around the Mediterranean. They also tried to avoid sailing during the winter months. So this was a late season journey, and therefore they were being particularly cautious. Verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. This is one of the indicators that I mentioned previously of the favor that Paul enjoyed with his Gentile captors. These ships typically took a long time to load and unload cargo, and free passengers would, of course, disembark and go into town to stretch their legs and get a good meal. Prisoners would typically be kept on board, but Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. He probably had to have a soldier with him as a guard, but he would have gone to the home of a local Christian and been able to freshen up, pray with friends, 
and eat a good meal. Verse 4. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. At certain times of the year, you would sail to the west of Cyprus, but with the winds having turned, they needed to sail to the east of Cyprus under the lee. Verse 5. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. This was probably a corn ship. At this time in history, a lot of the corn in Rome came from the north coast of Africa, passing through the port city of Alexandria. Those ships generally sailed directly north from Egypt to Myra and then westward over to Rome. Verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Neidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasaya. Now, to a reader familiar with the Mediterranean sea routes, these two verses would indicate that conditions were becoming unfavorable. Normally, ships would want to sail west from Neidus along the north shore of Crete, but the winds at this time of the year would turn and start coming from the northwest, and that appears to be what happens here. This drives the ship beneath Crete on the south side of the island in an attempt to shelter from the contrary winds. This is before the time when sails were modified and techniques perfected that allowed ships to sail against the wind. So, Luke indicates that they made their way along the south shore with difficulty, likely relying on the evening offshore breezes. Verse 9 says, Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Roman ships generally did not sail in the Mediterranean from mid-September through mid-March. But Paul and his companions are now trying to navigate a difficult stretch of the sea in the second week of October. He didn't have to be a prophet to perceive that this voyage was headed for trouble. But the owner of the ship wanted to try and reach Phoenix, which scholars believe corresponds to modern-day Phoenicia, which has subsequently silted up and is no longer accessible to ships, but would have been open at the time. Verse 13 says, Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. 
Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So here, during the worst of the storm, Paul is promised special deliverance, not only for himself, but also for all those who travel with him. Interestingly, as a bit of a sidebar, notice how easily divine sovereignty and human responsibility sit side by side in the mind of the Apostle Paul. He says that he has faith that God will do exactly as he has promised. He will deliver Paul and all his companions. And yet, he says, we must run aground on some island. The promise of divine action does not equate, in Paul's mind, with human inaction. He doesn't say, God's going to rescue us, so let's have a nap. He says, God is going to rescue us, so let's pull hard for that island. I think that's helpful to see. Faith in God should never result in human passivity or inaction. Pastor Paul, let me jump in here for a second, if I can, because, as I mentioned in the introduction to this program, I find these things difficult to reconcile. I agree we see them both in the Bible, but how do they really go together? How can it be true that God is sovereign, and yet I'm responsible for my actions? Are those things really compatible? And if so, how so? Well, your first question is easy to answer, and your second question is impossible to answer. Hmm, You're welcome. (laughs) Right. Well, (laughs) so we'll start with the easy one first. It is definitely true that they are compatible. How do I know that? Well, for one thing, we're seeing these truths presented side by side without apology in this story. An angel from the Lord tells Paul that as a part of God's sovereign plan, he must stand before Caesar and give a defense of the gospel. So... That sounds like it's written down in a book somewhere. On such and such a date, Paul's going to give his defense before Caesar, and that is going to be helpful for the cause of the Christian church moving forward. So so let it be written, so let it be done. That's a divine decree, all right? But to get there, everyone on the ship needs to work together and take wise action. So Paul says, we've got to run the ship aground on some island. Okay, and, and what if they didn't? What if they said, hey, nuts to the rabbi man, what do you know about sailing? We're going to do things our way, and whether you stand before Caesar or not, it's not our main concern at this moment. Well, that's to move into the impossible part, right? Let's let's stick with the easy part first. Any Bible reader will know that however they go together, they certainly do go together. God's sovereignty and human responsibility very often appear side by side in the same Bible story, as they have already done in the book of Acts. Think back, for example, to Peter's speech in Acts 2. He said in verses 22 to 23, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, close quote. So the death of Jesus on the cross was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And at the same time, the responsible and culpable action of the Jewish leadership. It was God's will and it was the responsible action of human agents. 
So there can be no debate whatsoever as, as to whether these things go together in the Bible. They are frequently presented side by side in the same paragraph. Okay, granted that the Bible assumes and asserts that these things are compatible, I don't still understand how that can be. How can God ordain something that must and will happen, and yet I'm still making real and responsible choices? Like, if God's willed it, doesn't that turn to me in— doesn't that turn me into some kind of puppet or robot? Right, and that's the part that I'm not sure that we can or ever will understand. Human beings are locked in time. So for us, there's always a logical chain of cause and effect. But God is the creator of space and time and stands ultimately above space and time. So how does that affect how he relates to sequence and causality? I don't know, but I'm sure it must. But I have a hard time conceptualizing that. And I'm okay with that. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So that verse seems to be saying that there are things that are known only to God. There are truths that just are not accessible to us. And therefore, our main concern should be to worry about the things we've been told. Now, applied to this conversation, I would say that we've been told that God is sovereign. We've been told that he is working a plan, and we've been told that his plan will surely come to pass. And yet, we've also been told that we're making real decisions and real choices, and that we'll be held accountable for those decisions and choices. We're not robots. We're not puppets. Providence does not imply fatalism. The Bible says that. It reveals that, but it does not explain the precise mechanism that permits that. That remains a secret thing. And and as I said, I'm okay with that. I actually don't expect to understand everything about the infinite and eternal God that I serve. Okay, well, that actually makes sense. I, I don't understand it, but I think I understand now why I don't understand it. And um For some reason, that makes me feel better. Well, I'm glad. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, let's jump back into the story now at verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed, for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. The island that they were approaching turns out to be the island of Malta, just south of Sicily. As the sailors hear the breakers, they attempt to save themselves by abandoning the ship and taking the ship's tender and making a run for the shore. Practically speaking, that would have left the soldiers and Paul and his companions at the mercy of the sea. And then spiritually speaking, it didn't line up with what God had said in terms of their deliverance. God had said that he was going to save them together. So Paul reminds the centurion of that, and he takes matters into his own hands. He cuts away the ropes, and he sets the tender free. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength 
for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. They lightened the ship because the the whole reason you had a a tender or a pinnace or a ship's boat or whatever you want to call it is that you needed a shallow draft to get close enough to the shore to disembark. A, A large ship would run aground well out to sea, and if you couldn't swim, you're going to be in trouble. So they wanted to be able to get in as close as they could to land. Verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. No less miraculous than Jonah and the whale or Daniel in the lion's den. God has demonstrated his sovereign choice of Paul to serve as his prophet and messenger to the nations. He has granted him special deliverance. He has saved him and all who are with him. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to what you said at the end of the program audio where you compared the Apostle Paul to the Old Testament prophets of Daniel and Jonah. I think that's an apt comparison. This does feel like an Old Testament story as opposed to something we would find in the New Testament, but that's intentional, right? Yeah, I think I quoted I. Howard Marshall at the start of the program audio making that exact point. Acts 27 feels like a bit of an interruption. It doesn't really contribute to the narrative, and it doesn't really add anything to the theology being presented through the narrative. Even the point that we were discussing a few minutes ago about how divine sovereignty and human responsibility go together, that point was already made back in Acts 2. So there's no development here and no obvious reason for Luke to give this story so much word count. Except for the fact that it makes the Apostle Paul look an awful lot like an Old Testament prophet. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is the point. I think the Holy Spirit through Luke is trying to help us understand how divine revelation works. Luther said that scripture is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. So the Old Testament prophets point forward to Christ and the New Testament apostles point back. But they're all a piece. There is symmetry here and an obvious center. So I remember having a few conversations over the course of this series about there being a sort of small p gift of prophecy now that all true spirit-filled believers have to some degree or another, but here the apostolic gift is being set apart. All true believers might be small p prophets according to Acts 2, but only the apostles are like the Old Testament prophets in terms of their authority and stature. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. 
Peter's speech in Acts 2 uh, says that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. That, that's Acts 2, 17 to 18. Now, that obviously doesn't mean that you and I are the equivalent of Jonah and Daniel and Isaiah. We are not authoritative, inscripturated prophets. But the Apostle Paul is. The Apostle Peter is. The Apostle John is. The New Testament apostles are like the Old Testament prophets. They all point to Jesus in an authoritative and authorized way. Some pointing forward and some pointing backward, but all of their light and all of their insight focused on him. Thanks be to God. Yes, and amen to that. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 